Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I was thinking about the Christmas of 2009. I had just recently, maybe a few weeks earlier, gotten saved, and it changed my life. And that Christmas, I remember thinking about only one thing, and it was Pokemon Sapphire. (laughs) And I wish I could say that very first Christmas, I was just, Jesus meant more to me than ever before, and I was like, no, I was thinking about Pokemon at 15 on Christmas in 2009. And, uh, and it was a beautiful Christmas because I got the game and, and I spent the rest of uh, break in my room playing it by myself. Not family and gratitude, not baby Jesus incarnate propitiation for our sins, atonement theory. I was in my room catching Pokemon and having the time of my life. I think forward a little bit, and uh, the, it's, it's funny getting closer in time. I don't remember the year exactly. I probably could do the math. But there was a Christmas maybe five or six years ago. Christmas ought to be really important. Christmas is obviously a celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also my, my father's birthday, and it's also my wife's birthday. So it's like it holds all kinds of sentimental value, and for some reason I've just got to really reach for it. And this particular Christmas, I had to work on Christmas Eve. Shelby and our children were already up in Divide, Colorado with her mother, and uh, or I think we only had one child at that point, but they were up in Divide, and uh, so I had to work Christmas Eve, and I think I got off at like 3.30 or something like that, um, and uh, I wasn't working here at the church. That would be funny, making me work at the church on Christmas Eve, um, but uh, I uh, got off of work, and I had to get into my car, and it's kind of snowy like it always is in Pagosa on Christmas, and I had to drive up to Divide from Pagosa, and then I would spend that night and like a couple hours Christmas morning, and then I had to drive back um, because I was taking uh, teenagers to One Thing Conference in Kansas City, and I had to stop in Pueblo, and I got to say hi to my parents accidentally because, it's like I said, it's Christmas Day. And it's also my father's one and only birthday, and I was not going to even see them because, again, I'm an awful person, and, and I don't feel the feelings that people feel around Christmas. I was like, this is just a chore. I just have to get back to my house. And so I had to stop, and I had to pick up a 15-passenger van that I was borrowing from a pastor because I had to, or take him 30 kids to Kansas City over New Year's. And so I stop at like 9 o'clock at night or something. <laughs> Uh, and the pastor's not even there, and so the keys are in the van. I get in the van, and it doesn't start. And I was like, what do I do? You know, I, I, like, I, don't, I don't even know how to start to assess this problem. And so I, I remember what my dad said. Uh, I don't know if he, he meant it like this, but I called him at 9 o'clock on his birthday on Christmas. Hey, I have this van. Long story, i got to drive it back tonight. So can you, because I think I had to work the next day, actually. Um, <laughs> can you come to this place that you don't know and uh, give me a jump or help me start it? And sure enough, my parents aren't horrible people, and so they came and were like, Merry Christmas, we got you a present, and, and made me feel bad. And they start, the, they start the van for me, and we had to charge it for a long time, so I'm sitting there in the car with my parents. Um, and then I had, like, I probably drove through the worst weather of my life on, like, uh, I-25 South. It was just 
I don't know, like 80 mile an hour winds and you're driving this basically boat sail of a vehicle and I'm just like sailing in between the lanes and thankfully there's no one on the road because it's Christmas in the middle of the night and, uh, and I got home and it was fine, you know, and, and I went to Kansas City and all these sort of things. Thinking about these Christmases, I hope inspires and provokes you to, to, to think of uh, joyful memories or, or, or memories that have a little bit of sorrow or memories that are a little funny around this holiday because it's taken so many forms and shapes. That arrow, is it wrong to say, it's probably about like family and stuff, because that's what you always say, it's about family and being grateful, whatever. But it's also about uh, commercialism and consumerism. It's about promotion and movies. It's about the nearness of God and spirituality. It's about all of these sort of things. And things like this make... uh, they make me upset, if that makes sense, that I feel like I, I want to offer an explanation. I want to be able to explain this phenomenon of Christmas where some, like the pastor I mentioned before, is just full of glee over this holiday and everything having to do with it. And then other people, it's like, oh man, Christmas. Can I just, like, can I just go to work on Christmas? Because it's like, it's just too many bad memories, or they don't have a family to be grateful for, and these kinds of things, and loneliness, and all this sort of stuff. And so today, I want to rewind just a little bit from what is the classical Christmas message of baby in a manger, and we're just going to take a a couple steps back, and I just want to look at what this really means, and hopefully that can offer some, some comfort and some hope to us. Now, if you're in John uh, chapter 1, um, go ahead and, and, and begin to look there. Um, we say this all the time here as I take a drink of coffee. We say this all the time here that it's important when you're reading the Bible to do as the great expositor John Stott said, to build a bridge between the eyes, ears, hearts, minds of the original audience of the text and build a bridge to the eyes, ears, minds, hearts of the modern audience. So in no way are you changing the meaning, but it's almost like you're translating it from one language to another. Well, I guess literally it is translating from one language to another. But also, there's more than just language. There is culture, there is background, there is a way that this text was meant to be heard. And sometimes we come to the Bible and just be like, oh, well, whatever it says, that's what it says. But what if we don't understand what it says? There is a a presupposition that was brought to the Bible that the people who were hearing it and reading it and remembering it and talking about it and teaching it, they had background information that they were privy to that was included in the text. So when we read the Gospel of John, we know a little bit about the audience. This is a biography of Jesus that was likely written quite a bit later than the first three biographies that we have. It's obviously in a very different style than those Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, just all links together, doesn't it? Um, But something about this text is that it was written to people who were likely from a Jewish background. That means that they weren't just like nominal, like uh, on the fringe Jewish people. They knew the Torah, they knew the law that was part of their culture. It would be familiar to them. 
And beyond them just being Jewish people, they lived in what's considered a very Hellenistic society, that is a very Greek society. And Greeks were really into uh, lectures and philosophy and explanation and logic. And so both of those worlds kind of converge into this poetic overture. So what we're reading today is just the first 14 verses of this chapter. And if you've ever listened to a symphony with ears that care, <laughs> like not just like symphony like in the elevator at a hotel or something, but the overture of a symphony or maybe a musical, that's probably a more relatable uh, thing, people listen to musicals, you'll notice that there's, there's themes and there's hooks in that opening number that are foreshadowing things that are going on later. And so this prologue functions like that, that it begins to draw out major themes that will be expanded on throughout the book. So with all that in mind, let's begin in verse number one. <coughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now this is a great example of allusion to Hebrew text, because if you were a Jewish hearer, the phrase in the beginning is not just an introductory phrase, that would immediately hyperlink you to Genesis chapter 1. That, that is the exact same way that it's written in the, the Greek Old Testament, they're, they're usually reading out of Greek in this time, is in the beginning. But then there's a contrast. And this is marvelous because if you've ever looked at a, a painting that uses a lot of subdued colors and maybe like blacks and whites, and then there's like one part of the painting that is high resolution color, your eyes immediately go to that. It's like if, if, if every house is following the uh, HOA's rules and they're all kind of gray or brown, and then one person decides to paint their house lime green, your eyes immediately go to that house. And so this contrast the Jewish hearers are hearing in the beginning. It's like we know exactly what is the subject matter that is being addressed here. But then instead of talking about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the author goes to in the beginning was the word. That instead of talking about the creation, he's now talking about the uncreated. And it draws your attention in like, this is really valid. This is really important stuff that he's, he's unpacking is that before God created the heavens and the earth, something was there. Before all everything, God was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word, word, um, I take the pause so that way you can tell the difference. I'm not just stuttering. The word, word, in the Greek is the word logos. I have since been reformed from trying to like put Greek words into slides and stuff like that, because most of the time, I am wrong. And I'll tell you honestly, don't speak Greek. I just read books. And, uh, and I was listening to people talk about that. It's like, it's really just a tool to make yourself sound smart. There's a reason that experts and doctors and PhDs translate this into English, so that way I don't have to translate it from Greek. So, but the word logos is accurately translated into word. That's not like a there's not like some hidden background meaning of that, but there is context and there is potency in there that isn't just like, it's not just the Bible. That's not what is being referred to as the word of God. So this word logos is used throughout the Old Testament in, in the Septuagint Greek to describe 
the actions, the personality of God, the, the interjection of the Lord, the word of the Lord from heaven, these kinds of things. And the way it's being described here is marvelous. Because it's not just his integrity or his communication or something like that. It's actually implying something about his personality that he is, in essence, communicative. That he likes to talk and praise God that we have a Lord, a God who likes to talk. Can you imagine if you were just trying to figure this out on your own? Can you imagine if your boss at work never talked to you? Some of you are like, praise God. No, like... Imagine meeting expectations without any sort of in instructions, without any sort of communication. Imagine having relationship without any sort of communication. That would be like, I'm talking like verbal communication. I'm not talking about like anything more spiritual than that. I'm talking about like, imagine having a friend that you could not talk to and did not talk to you. That would be difficult, right? And so this is implying something about God. But then we look a little closer and there's this this miraculous word that is with. So we can say these things about God. God is uncreated. God is communicative. God is personal, all those sort of things. But then we get into, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And the word was God. So there is something that is God that is distinct from God, but unified with God because they're the same. And I don't want to, like, like, I don't know, scramble everybody's eggs this morning, but the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that we can take for granted. This is truly remarkable and humanly incomprehensible. And here, told poetically that the Lord, who is the Word, spoiler alert, we're going to get there, the Lord Jesus, who is the Word, is with God and is God. So he's distinct but unified. And I, that's, that's something to glory on in and of itself, that Jesus can be God, but distinct from God, but unified with God. Let's continue in verse 3. Oh, there's something else in verse 2 that I feel like maybe I should just bring up just for clarity's sake. Uh, this is not like a modern patriarchal translation error or something like that. The masculine pronouns are used to describe God. That's very much in the Bible. Um, and that is, I mean, Jesus as a man was very much like a man, like anatomically. Um, and when I say God uses masculine pronouns, that's not to like imply that he's a man, like I may be a man or, or if you are a man, like you're a man, if you catch my meaning, um, like, but as I was considering this and, and considering including this in the message, um, I feel like this is helpful for us where God isn't a man like you are and I are a man anatomically. He uses this image, this picture, to relate to us personally. So when he says things like father or bridegroom, it relates to us deeply and personally because it's not that he's just some sort of energy force, but he is a distinct, personal, knowable personality. Does that make sense? Anyways, God uses masculine pronouns all the time, so don't get offended by that. <clears throat> anyway, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I have this wonderful quote um, from Dr. Richard Bachman. He says this. Yeah. Or, do you have that Bachman quote? There it is. Um, the uniqueness of divine identity 
was characterized especially by two features, that God is the sole creator of all things and that the one God is the sole ruler of all things. To this unique identity corresponds monultry, and he explains what that is, the exclusive worship of the one and only God who is so characterized. So it's important to note, again, as we're, as we're reading this from its context, to the Jewish hearer and understander, when it says that this, this word, this logos, created everything, that nothing came into being without it, that is absolutely a blatant assertion that this is God. Because creation isn't the responsibility of like agents or intermediaries or, or ambassadors. Creation is God's responsibility solely. And so to the Jewish hearers, they understood this explicitly, like this is not just like some sort of divine-ish person. This is very much the one true God that is being described. The one true God is the one who created all things, and through him all things came into being. So now this, this loops us back around after we've been jarred and confused as Jewish hearers of this, of this New Testament writing biography of Jesus in the creation was in the beginning was the uncreated. Now we've looped back around to the actual creation. This is the same reference. This is the same sort of theme and picture that we're drawing on from Genesis. Continue on to verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is Again, relating us to that Genesis image, because the first thing that the Lord speaks into existence is light. And for some of you, maybe reading Genesis, it's like, well, that's nice. But then you, you, you ponder for a moment. God created light, but then a couple days later, he creates the sun. So, and even before the sun, he created plants. How is this working? You know, like, how is this functioning together that all these things are dependent and independent of each other? The way the author of John, who we believe to be John, um, <laughs> describes this is that this life in him was the light of all men. That when, when God says in the beginning, let there be light, this is the same sort of image that is being invoked when God creates man and breathes life into his nostrils. It says he breathes his very own breath, making him distinct from the rest of creation. That he's not just a, another beast to kind of be tamed and maintained. That mankind is something altogether different with the breath and the image of God. And I like this, this picture as you and I kind of enter the story. So we're talking about things that are gigantic right now. Like before creation, something existed. That will cook your noodle. I'm not even kidding. Like the idea like, okay, imagine as far back as you can remember and then a little bit further than that. And then probably a little bit further than that, there's God. You know, that's, that's beyond human history, beyond conceptual science, beyond philosophy, beyond logic and reason. There is God outside of all of it existing eternities past. And now we're narrowing it in that in him is something deeply personal that is the very life that keeps us animated and upright. That in him is, is light and we see this image, this is another image that is being invoked and, and will be expounded on in the Gospel of John. There's this narrative of, of somehow conflict. Um, depending on your translation, um, verse 5 may say, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And some translations say something akin to comprehend or receive or something like that. And I think the reason that there's variety there is because it's just not a very easy word to describe. And 
As I was reading, people who are much smarter than me describe the meaning of this word comprehend, overcome, whatever. They were saying it has a lot to do with accept and receive, but not like uh, you can just reject it and it doesn't have any bearing on you. It still very much has bearing on you, but you can reject it. And so what you can picture very accurately is there is conflict between light and darkness. And this is an image that is used within Greek philosophy. This is an image that is used within fantasy stories. This is an image that is used within the Lord of the Rings. This is an image that is used within, um, I don't know, every story ever, that light equals good and darkness equals bad. <laughs> that is okay to, to drive that meaning from this, this text. And that's exactly what's, what it's trying to say, is that there is this light that is life from God, and there is darkness that will oppose it. And there already is, in verse 5, this guarantee of victory, that the light cannot be overcome. The light can't even be understood by the darkness, but there is darkness. And the darkness will enter into this narrative very quickly. This all sounds very triumphant and beautiful, but the darkness does enter in very quickly as true to life. Let's look at verse 6. <clears throat> there came a man sent from God whose name was John, not to be confused with the author of the book. That was a very common name, still is. Uh, verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, he being John, but he came to testify about the light. And so this is, this is really cool because this takes this cosmological creation theory, poetic language, and then all of a sudden interjects a chunk of prose that this isn't just something that is outside of human consideration. This is something that it takes place in a historic time period. That John the Baptist was a historic figure that was known of and written of beyond just the scope of the Bible. So now it's saying this God who's uncreated, who's creating all things, who's light and winning a battle with darkness, all this sort of stuff, he was spoken about by a real person. This isn't disconnected from our lives. This isn't disconnected from our history. This isn't irrelevant to you or me or your neighbor or the people across the world who's never heard the gospel. This isn't irrelevant. This is deeply historical and relevant and personal. This isn't lofty and contemplative. This is deeply personal and connected. I think this is interesting. Um, the scholar that I was reading said that uh, a lot of people believe that this is actually the beginning of the book, that... Um, verse 6 through like 7 uh, would link to verse 19 and that that was actually the original beginning and then the Holy Spirit somewhere in that composition phase, first draft, second draft, whatever, um, interjected this poem to describe the essential beginnings of all things. And I think that's pretty neat. Verse 9, there was the true light coming into the world enlightens every man. So as we Look at this theme of light. It's linked to this sort of progressive action. That This isn't just light that is there, take it or leave it. But this is light that is there for you to bring light into your life and that it is coming into the world. The language is very specific that he is actively coming, that he is actively um, making himself appear. And it's, it's personal in the way that this is for all people. This isn't just something that is for churches on Sunday mornings around Christmas. This is something that is for all people at all times. Verse 10. He, he being the light, 
was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were his own did not receive him. So this is likely like looking forward. It's looking forward into basically all of human history, but also defining up until this point. If you read like Romans 1, it talks about how um, the knowledge of God in like general revelation has always been there. Nobody has ever been in the dark about the Lord, so to speak. But there is this, this active revealing that is taking place as Jesus, the Lord, is revealing himself. People are rejecting him. And there's this resistance. And it's important to draw from here that God is not content with just being a background figure pulling the strings. The, this idea of him being testified to by John, him coming to enlighten every man, him um, making himself known but being rejected is absolutely asserting the idea that he desires to be known. That he is knowable, but it's not just his business to be like the big boss in charge doesn't really need that much attention. He desires to be personally known. And really, at, at the heart of the scripture, all of it, is this narrative of how he is going about that business of making himself known and how he responds to people who know him or don't. Verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we get this picture that there are people who were his. He created everything. There were people who belonged to him, who did not receive him or know him. But then there's this wonderful good news that those who received him, those who responded to him rightly as he deserves, were given a right to become children. They were given a legal certificate of adoption, so to speak, and they were brought into his family. Not by their own merit, not by the will of man or the will of flesh, but by the will of God. That means no one has an advantage in this, this right. That this is offered to every individual person in every place at all times completely equally. And that is good news. To everyone who receives Jesus, they are given the right to be a child of God. To everyone who receives the Logos, the uncreated, the Holy One, they are given the right to be children of God. And I think sometimes there's this misconception with the word believe. And over generations uh, of church history, people have taken this as like, okay, here's our bare minimum requirement. So if you just believe on the name of Jesus, then you're saved. Great. I believe that there is a name that is Jesus. My aforementioned father, his middle name is Jesus because he was born on Christmas. Although we pronounce it Jesus because Spanish you know, a language. But it's still the name Jesus, right? And some people even say, if you don't believe in the name of Jesus correctly, then you don't believe in Jesus because his real name is Yeshua. I was like, come on. That's not what it means. I think even outside of, uh, of uh, expository preaching, we know that's not what it means. You know? Like, I'm not married to Shelby because I believe her name is Shelby. That has almost nothing to do with it. And so 
The word believe is translated here, and it's important because all these things that we're listing, the uncreated, the creator of all things, the light for every man, overcoming the darkness, these things that we're listing, we have to let bear on our souls. I hope this, this could feel today like weight being heaped on the shoulders of your inner man. As you reckon with verse 14 that we're about to get to, which is very severe and intense and beautiful and the reason for Christmas and jingle bells, let it snow, whatever. As we get there, I hope the rest of this really bears on you. Because if we believe in Jesus, we have to believe these things about him. And beyond just believing that they're true, we actually have to respond to them accordingly. I used the example a couple weeks ago that if you hear something, but don't do anything about it, you're not actually listening. So if you sit in teaching, if you go to school to become an engineer, and you hear all the facts, you're present for all of the speaking, but then you don't ever actually engineer anything, (laughs) you're not an engineer. And if we look at all these things that are said about the Lord and about Jesus and how he's worthy of worship because he is the one who created all things and desires relationship and connect, connectivity with us, we actually have to respond to that. I like uh, one scholar, N.T. Wright, he always describes this word as like faith and belief as loyalty. Because some, somehow that, that relates a little bit better to our Western minds than just like I believe this is true, so it obviously will inherently affect my life. But he's like, when you believe on Jesus, when you you trust in Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus, you're actually pledging to him your own loyalty and service over and above any other Lord. That when you believe that he is Lord, you're believing that he is going to Lord over your life. And this isn't a gospel of works. This is something that is only given to us by grace and by merit. But the... the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the, the sort of ripple from that, that, uh, that faith event of believing on Jesus is your life belongs to him because it always did. I hope that makes sense. I always ask, does that make sense? Just for a little bit of confirmation and just a little bit of interaction. But if it doesn't make sense, we'll talk about it later. Take a note. We can talk about that more. Uh, it's, it's my ongoing plight. It's, it's the struggle of my life and my aim to talk less. And so <laughs> when I pray about sermons, content is not that difficult. I feel like the Bible is brimming with content to talk about when you're talking about Jesus. It's God, help me get to the point. Help me land the plane, you know? Um, and by his grace, maybe we'll get there. So we're advancing quickly to the Christmas verse. This is quintessential Christmas stuff. Verse 14, all of this weight that you can proverbially carry on your shoulders of the Lord of the universe, the one who requires exclusive worship, who does not share glory with another, the one who's been weaving all the narratives of history into this one moment is responding to all his own prophecies in the most powerful and unexpected way. and says, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Can you imagine? We just spent, I don't know, 70 times seven weeks in the book of Jeremiah. Not literally. It actually wasn't even a year. We figured that out. It felt like it was a really long time, but it wasn't even an entire year. But we just finished the book of Jeremiah on Tuesday night. But can you imagine Jeremiah 31 and these prophecies of a new covenant and all these sort of things? And the Lord is drawing this story with like, uh, like Genesis 3 and like the descendant of Eve will have enmity to the snake, but the snake will nip at his heel, but he'll crush the snake's head. And, and all of these stories are leading towards this person. And, and 1 Samuel 12, where it talks about there's a king that will be on David's throne who will know no sin and will reign for all time forever. And all of these stories are now converging aggressively into a baby. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the original hearers of Isaiah chapter 9? where there's this prophecy of like there's oppression and suffering, there's corruption and war, and all of those things are going to be brought to an end when a child is born. And the hearers are like, oh man, we must have, that must be symbolic. There must be a good king coming. But the assertions about this king is that his government will never end. And peace will never stop. And it's like, well, that's a different kind of king, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe this is a symbolic king, you know, because like every, every time one of our kings has uh, knowing relations with one of his many wives, a child is born. But this increase of government and this increase of peace is not happening at all. And all of these stories are converging from all over the library of scripture to this final hopeful moment where the word, the logos, the Lord who created everything becomes human. And the late R.C. Sproul described this as truly God and truly man. And I think it's marvelous to lead us up until this point. I know if you've been in church for a minute, you've probably read this before. But I'm excited to read it together. I've probably read it with you before. But isn't this marvelous? Isn't this glorious? That his answer to the human situation, to put it lightly, is to actually come and be with us. That's what Christmas is about, man. Praise God for Pokemon. I was thankful for that. Like, that was, a, that was a memorable, obviously it was a memorable, I remember the year, I remember so many details about that. But this is what Christmas is actually about. Beyond my own struggles, beyond my own situations, but also completely overlapped with my problems and my situations. Is God with us? I grew up uh, fairly uh, poor. And my parents were never like super upfront about how poor we were, which is probably a good thing. You know, kids don't necessarily be, need to be stressed about those kinds of things. Um, and and I, I felt it the older I got where like I only wanted one thing for Christmas and it was just Pokemon. And at that time, it was like 1999. I was like, am I going to get it? Is this going to happen? Are we going to get there? And we got there. But can you imagine the Lord of heaven's armies, the one who alone holds immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, becoming the, the vulnerable, sniveling, pooping-in-its-pants baby in a manger where there was no room for him anywhere else? What humility. What poverty, what beauty, 
This, this young woman who had never actually been with a man bears a child. What terror, <laughs> like what, what beauty that is in this story of God overlapping with the human experience. And when I'm talking to Arrow, Dad, what's Christmas all about? I'm thinking, well, because he was born as a man and with a healthy understanding of federal headship, we understand that Jesus can be the propitiation for our sins and satisfy the wrath of God that was imposed from God by God. These kind of things. But he's with us. Like, he's not unfamiliar with the plight. He's not unfamiliar with the pain. He's not unfamiliar with the joy. He's not unfamiliar with friendship and disappointment. He's not so lofty that we can't talk to him. He's not so lofty that he would, like, take his presence away from me, where my very first Christmas as a Christian, the only Christian in my family at that time, all I could think about was this stupid video game that was already a couple years old, guys. Don't look up the time frames. It wasn't new. And the Lord had mercy on me and had grace on me. And the Lord had mercy for you and grace for you because he understands. This is the beauty of the Christmas story. I love this because when we read the word uh, in my translation, it says dwelt. I don't know if you've used dwelt recently. It's not a very common English word in our modern vernacular. Dwell is almost like, maybe we say like dwelling for like a fancy word for a house, but it's just not the way we talk. But what I found as I read uh, my Bible is usually when we run into those words that aren't common in, in our modern English, it's because it's really hard to translate it into modern English. And so the word that's used for uh, dwelt or dwelling, dwell, whatever, is um, the same word that in the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, um, it's a verb form of tabernacle. And so that, that Jesus, like the word became flesh and tabernacled with the people. Again, this is drawing us back to Genesis and saying, remember when you dwelled with no home and no place and I was with you. This takes us to Exodus in this narrative that in the middle of vast nothingness, the wilderness outside of Egypt, as the, the nation of God's chosen people, liberated from slavery, wandered in their own rebellion and, and uh, fear and, and confusion and, and misplaced priorities, as they wandered through the wilderness for decades, there was the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of God, where he wasn't just talked about there. He wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just a place of learning. His presence was manifest there that some people couldn't even go in. If you, if you recall, in Exodus 33, there's this story of the manifest presence of God where he comes down on the tent of meeting and people are standing at the doorways of their tents kind of scared. If you remember, like, the Lord speaking at Mount Sinai, people were like, please stop. <laughs> this, is, this is insane. This is the manifest presence of God, the Holy One who created all things and has the light of life and all these sort of details. He's there. And then they're describing Jesus in a manger. This is the glory of God. This is the glory of God like on Mount Sinai. This is the glory of God that, that dwells with us. That today, if you feel 
lonely or if you feel misunderstood, God is with us, man. God understands. He understands ontologically because he knows everything, but he understands experientially because he was a baby too. He was a man. He was a teenager. He grew in the knowledge of God and in the favor of men. This is amazing. I love it because in 1 John 4, this doctrine, and, and, I, and, I, and I very intentionally call it a doctrine, this doctrine of, of Jesus being born as a human being, in 1 John 4, get this, this is the test on whether or not the Spirit of God is with you or the Spirit of Antichrist. In 1 John 4, the author, who we think is John, <laughs> same John, probably, he says this, if you want to know if the Spirit of Antichrist is among you, if they deny that Jesus was born as a human... That's the spirit of Antichrist. What? You mean it's not some Russian villain like from a, a Kirk Cameron movie? Like that you could have this, the spirit of Antichrist in your place of work because they deny the birth of Jesus, that he was truly human? That's the Antichrist. There's more to it than that. Don't take that for like, whoa, what do I do with Kirk Cameron now? Um, <laughs> Guys, I've thought so much about those movies recently. I did a whole class on eschatology, and I feel like I know less now than I did when I started. And I just, if, if you have more information on those things, please teach me, because I just, I need more. <clears throat> Beside the point. So, my conversation with Arrow that I opened the sermon with lasted, I know, less than three minutes. Because I set a timer for three minutes, and then I go out, to the living room and space out until I fall asleep. Because <laughs> parenthood. Um, it used to be five minutes and now it's three. Um, sometimes it's still five. Sometimes it's more than that. Anyways, this conversation was very brief. It wasn't super deep. Um, but it felt, in, in that moment, to Arrow, it felt satisfactory. I was able to give him an explanation. And to me, in that moment, it felt satisfactory. I was able to explain it. But sometimes, explanations aren't enough. Sometimes knowing the answer doesn't mean that you can endure through the process. Sometimes just the mere existence of a finish line or the mere existence of hope doesn't necessarily provide you with the fuel to keep going. And I'm not a stranger to that that I think pulpits all over the world today are full of people that are telling you, don't give up, take hope and take courage that Jesus is with you. And they're right. They're absolutely right. And maybe today you feel that, and you feel like you've got a second wind, so to speak. And maybe today you don't. The goal of, of Christian life and discipleship to Jesus is not to lie to yourself. The goal of our perception of reality is not to be ostriches with our heads in the sand. The goal is to embrace what is true and what is real regardless of what is happening. And there's something about this story. There's something about Advent season. There's something about the birth of Jesus that when you're in a dark room, it's a light. When you are surrounded by nothing hopeful, 
this can outshine all of those things. Because to the audience that heard this, this is good news. But when John, the gospel of John was written, Jesus had long since died. And the church was advancing quickly towards persecution on a widespread scale. The apostle John, we believe, was aggressively tried, like they aggressively tried to kill him until eventually he was banished to a little rock in the middle of the Mediterranean by himself. This message of hope is for that moment. Not just for this historic moment. It is, it's there, but it's for that moment. Desert writers would call this the dark night of the soul. When it seems like the devil and the world and everything is converging. And I don't mean to make just a lot out of suffering. There's a certain level of the human experience that is just bored. And this hope is for that moment too. This is the off script part, so we're just going to go somewhere. Um, I, was, I was writing for this week, and I, was, I, I had a thing about Acts 19 and the church in Ephesus and stuff like that. And I was thinking about, I, I was hanging out with this pastor last uh, March, I think. And he used to work here uh, years and years before I did. Um, and he was telling me about the way God was moving back then. He was saying Holy Spirit was just like, like never before. And the church was just packed. And they were talking about prayer walking, the building that's now Ace Hardware. They were going to buy that building. That was going to be the church because the church was growing. People were getting saved. People were getting delivered. Holy Spirit was moving. I was like, man, those are sick stories. Dude, that's awesome. And there's something inside of you that when you hear a cool story like that, you're like, kind of, kind of stinkiness comes into your, your attitude where it's like, why, why, why not anymore? You know, and I love it. Last week, after church, I, I asked Lisa, because Darwin and Lisa have been here for how long? Thirty years. Thirty years. Um, I asked her, "What was it like back then?" And she's like, "It was really good." I was like, "Cool. What? Like, tell me about that. Tell me about how it felt, or or what you experienced." And she's like, "No, I don't feel like it was very much different from what we experience now, but the pastor was just really like." a likable guy, you know? And so people wanted to come and kind of see him do his thing. He was just a really expressive, interesting person. And sometimes church seasons are just kind of defined like that. Like there are great personalities that draw a crowd and something significant happens, but the Lord is not like bored today. And I have to take some sort of responsibility for this, you guys, because what we see here is marvelous and glorious and unprecedented and beautiful and holy and uh, illogical in its profound significance, why doesn't that get to us? And I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm going to take responsibility for that. Not sole responsibility, we're all in this together, I'm not, that, I'm not different from you guys. I'm going to take responsibility for this, that the reason that the Holy Spirit doesn't fill me with hope and I get bored is because I don't really want to be excited. And I think there's something about the phases of, of church and the phases of life and the things that you go through that maybe there's sorrow and suffering. And if there is, we're going to pray for you today that you would see the light of Jesus and that this would give you hope, that this would break through this unending tundra with an oasis of peace and hope and reassurance that the Lord is with you. But maybe you're just tired 
Maybe you're just used to the way things are. And if the Lord was going to start shaking things up, then your schedule would change, your routine would change. It'd probably cost you some money. And I think the Lord is gracious. I don't think he's like mad at us. But I don't want to be there, you guys. And this is my tendency. As a person, I love routine. I love doing the same thing week after week. I love it. Some of you are like, that sounds awful. I love it. I love eating the same thing for lunch every day. I love it. It makes me happy. But Lord, don't leave us there. And if you're, if you're missing times past where the Holy Spirit felt real and he was speaking and he was moving, not just in your life, because you're not just in this by yourself. If the Holy Spirit's, if you're having personal open heaven over your home, pray for us. Because that's not just for your home. I mean, praise God. Realist, this is not just for the church. God, do something. And I don't think he's like, but it's just my routine and I just... I really like the way things are right now where you guys just come and you kind of pay attention for a little bit and then you go home and you play Pokemon again and you just do your, do your thing and your routine and I just like the way that works. The Lord is zealous to accomplish this. The Lord is zealous to take us out of the tundra of despair and boredom and bring us into vibrant life. That our circumstances will not and prob- probably will not change. That suffering and despair are around every quarter because we live in a fallen world. But for the hearers of Isaiah 9 and then John 1 and, and the early church and, and all these, these people groups who have suffered greatly, they kept their eyes forward towards a hope of the coming of the Lord. That we still live in an Advent. So next Sunday, if you are opening presents and having like cooked roast beast, you know, like as you're celebrating together this wonderful breaking of the winter that is Advent resolution in Christmas, as you're doing that, there's still an Advent the next day. Because maybe your insulated bubble is really content right now and you're fine. But if you just look an inch further, there is darkness in the world. There is suffering that no one person or a group or organization has an answer for. There are horrors and immoralities and injustices committed every moment of every day. And I don't have an answer outside of the fact that we are in an Advent season that Jesus is going to come, that the light will not be overcome by the darkness. It can't. It's impossible. Let that fill you with hope today as you wait faithfully for the coming of Jesus. That we don't just have to despair, that we can rejoice not in denial, but in rebellion to the narrative of this world. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.